This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, my peers, and welcome to this week's episode of the Peers Project podcast. Today, I want to talk a little bit about failure. You know, for many of us high achievers out there, we can consider failure somewhat of a dirty word. You know, of course, we all know failure is inevitable to achieve success, but it can be incredibly demoralizing to experience what we consider to be failure after failure after failure. And no one understands this better than today's guest, the brilliant Adrian Osman. Adrian is the CEO of Pitch Black, a startup education and advisory company that helps entrepreneurs gain investment for their idea. Pitch Black has supported over 200 startups that as a collective have raised over $14 million in investment. The Pitch Black business model has been endorsed by the likes of Glenn Richards from Shark Tank Australia. As you can imagine, my peers, Adrian is someone who I truly admire for his tenacity, his drive, and his ability to not let his failures define him. Today's episode is jam-packed with practical tips on how to validate your idea before creating a product, the importance of finding and learning from a mentor, and how failure can actually be the launching pad that we need to create a successful business venture of our own. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Adrian Osman. Adrian, welcome to the Peace Project. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Thanks. Of course, of course. So, you know, you reached out to me over LinkedIn um, to come on the podcast several weeks ago. And, you know, since then... Um, I've, I've heard so much about you and your business. It's been popping up everywhere. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I've heard so much about how much fun your team has over at Pitch Black. And, and so I'm really excited to be chatting with you today. I'm excited as well. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, but before we go into you and your work, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, what did you love to do as a child? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and your career so far? That is such an interesting question. <laughs> I like how you don't give people a heads up for that one. It's good. <laughs> you get the true, the true answer. Uh, as a child, I, I, I'm a creative, I guess. So I liked, I play music. Um, so I'm like a, a, a music, I'd say a failing musician and a somewhat failing entrepreneur. But oh, no, not failing. <laughs> well, we're all failing at some level. But um, yeah, so creating, um, I'm very introverted, even though most people think I'm like super extroverted because I speak a lot. Uh, but yeah, really introverted. So I'd like play on the trampoline by myself for hours. I was on some other planet in my mind. 
um, or yeah, I started playing guitar at the start of high school. So um, writing music, playing music on my own. So a lot, a lot of actually quite introverted things, which is interesting. Yeah. So most people think I'm very outgoing and outspoken because most of my day is with people. But yeah, where I replenish is on my own in my own head. Yeah. Mm. I find that really fascinating because I mean, I mean, you know, you and I just met about five minutes ago, and yes. the first thing you did was give me a hug, which I thought was absolutely awesome. But you know, I would never have guessed that you were an introvert. So I guess what you know, as a child and as that being your nature, what did that kind of lead you to do? So it was it was it just of lots of solo time? Was it not really many friends? Like what experience did you have there? Yeah, I guess so. The benefits of introversion, um, yeah, a lot more space for creativity. Um, people, you know, and I love extroverts. Lots of my friends are extroverts, but when you're extroverted, you want to you want to get out of the house and be with other people. And uh, introverts are, are more are more likely to be comfortable spending eight hours on their laptop creating a song, or probably it's it's easier to do. Um, this is sort of later on in my life, but when when you're doing lo- like online learning and things like that, it's easy. you don't you're not freaking out having FOMO because you're on Skillshare learning from Seth Godin about some sort of shit. Um, so, so I think that was really helpful. And then in terms of friendships, it um, yeah, I, I was always a fan of having like a smaller group of really close friends as opposed to having lots and lots of friends. Mm. And that works really well for entrepreneurship as well because you have no time for people. So, so, so like you really don't have time for anyone. So if you were the kind of, if you're an extrovert and you had like a hundred friends, mm. they'd all feel really mistreated when you get into into business because you have no time for them. But if you can just have like 10 really close ones and they, you can still give them some love once a month. <laughs> Love that. Um, And I love that link with business, which is clearly what you've spent lots of your life um, doing. So talk to me about um, kind of one of maybe the early stage, early early businesses you created when you're maybe in your teens. You you said you had this creativity going on from a very young age. Talk to us a bit about one of those early businesses or ideas. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't, um, the background was I didn't didn't go to university um, afterwards. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, My parents were really good at... um, which is which is interesting. My parents have seven university degrees between them, and I have none. Wow. And they didn't actually push me to um, to go to university. Which was, so I only applied for one music course uh, at a at a university that was really hard to get in. Clearly, I wasn't good enough. <laughs> I was like sixteen when I graduated. Um, so I only applied for one one thing where you meant to apply for six. I remember in in uh, in Queensland where I'm from in, in Australia. So I didn't do that. Did out of school, did sales straight away. Um, so I did a few different sales jobs and got into sales management pretty quickly. So I, a few people threw me a bone pretty early um, and I'm very thankful to those people. They, I was really just arrogant and naive, 17, 18, 19 year old, didn't know what the hell I was doing. So, uh, But a few people threw me a bone and thought this guy could um, maybe be a leader at one point. I certainly wasn't one then. So yeah, got into, got into management and it was I was working in actually at a big agency an ad agency managing the call center and the face-to-face sales team. So I was managing like 150 direct and 100 people total when I was 20, um, 19, 20. And then met my now business partner, he's silent in pitch black, Jacob, when I was, yeah, just before 20, I was ready to, I was already done with having a boss by that point. I was like, (laughs) I'm out. I just met this crazy beach bum guy that was like happy constantly. And I was just just so attracted to this mindset that I'd never, never really seen anyone have because when you're in an agency or in, in a bigger company, you just don't meet those inspiring people that never seem to complain about anything and like think crazy big, even though they're not actually doing anything that crazy good at that point. And yeah, Jacob was a, um, a physio. Uh, he, um, 
AFL tragic, nearly played in professional <laughs> AFL. It was like one league down. Uh, he was too short at six foot five <laughs> as a ruck, uh, but nearly fa- played for his favourite team, the, the Hawks, which is a Melbourne AFL team. Um, met him and started contracting to him, actually. So we weren't ready to be business partners because he, he really was a mentorship thing. He needed a right-hand person. He's really good at the dreaming and the networking. Um, I I would be more... I'm, by then, I was really good at um, recruiting, people management, uh, all that sort of stuff, even though I'm not organised. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm organised. But I learned those skills and he, he, he really was looking for that person. And then we got to work. We had a little boring cash flow business um, to keep the lights on. Uh, and then we started pursuing our crazy ideas to answer your question, one of the first ones would have been the deals. This was years and years ago now, but the deal space was exploding. Um, the daily deal space, if you remember Groupon, mm. all these sorts of businesses. So one of the first ideas we worked on and, and failed miserably um, was the concept of taking deals into the um, sort of corporate and business space. So the insight was that cash incentives don't work anywhere near as much as experiences for staff, you know, people for, in terms of rewarding employee of the month or the top salesperson, um, just giving them a bonus check, albeit they might want that, it, it doesn't actually, they don't, they won't remember it and tie that to the company. So we're like, how can we merge staff rewards with this daily deal space? And we got some traction, this was called Reward and Grow, and we got some um, traction, but we, first we went and got all the deals ourselves and we would, we built a platform that was white labeled, meaning um, the business, they say it was for Coles, for example, the, the business could uh, white label it and brand it as themselves as their own portal and then you'd give credits to your team members when they performed and then they could redeem those credits on deals so when we first started we got our own deals and found that it was impossible to be profitable because there's like so much work in signing up the all the experiences and, and managing those deals but we were getting traction on the corporate side signing up lots of businesses so there was a, there was a real need on the b2b side and then we saw, then we're like, okay, we need to feed in someone else's deals because then we can just focus on the platform and the sales. And we, um, we after a long time, we did a national deal with Groupon Australia to feed in all their deals exclusively into the wow. platform. So it's sort of like powered by Groupon. Mm. And um, we things are really kicking into gear there because we didn't have to do any merchant management at all. We didn't, and we were getting a commission on the deal sold. Plus, we were charging a, a, a licensing fee for the platform itself. Started going really well there, and then Groupon International just decided that each country wasn't allowed to have their own individual deals. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) So we were up to like six staff in that business and then we literally got an email being like, we're really sorry, the deals will cut off in like two weeks and then we're we're dead. So on to the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. There is so much to take in from that. I mean, I think something that stands out is you were so young. So what what was this, 20 years old when you – That is, you know, I mean, for all that piece out there listening, you know, maybe you're at uni or maybe you're mid-20s and, you know, kind of taking that level of initiative at such a young age, like that's what strikes me the most. I think that obviously the the way that you were able to grow that business and then obviously you had the limitation, but, you know, you gave it a red hot go. Um, So talk to us a bit about where you think that initiative, that like drive comes from for you. That's a really good question. Uh, my the the funniest thing about my family and my family is good. I'm lucky to have two parents who are still together and a brother. None of them are entrepreneurial at all. I did, however, that my mum's a psychologist. My dad's a counsellor as well. So I grew up 
Uh, they always had a, their psychology practice at home. So I, I grew up in a home business environment, but my parents and my brother couldn't be less entrepreneurial. Like, wow. It's like full end of the spectrum. So I don't know how that happens. Um, wow. and this is really that um, – this has come up on other podcasts I've been on actually. It's like nature versus nurture. Mm. And I actually don't know the answer to whether – I've seen instances of it being both. Mm. Um, so it seemed really nature in me. This need, like the signs are like – Defiance and arguing with teachers and uh, all those things that you see in school. Like these are the these are the nature signs of an entrepreneur. And then, but then nurture the amount of entre- entrepreneurs around us that we're helping now. Um, even my partner Kim, like they they didn't really show signs of being entrepreneurial. Now mm. they're incredibly entrepreneurial now. So I I think it can be both. Um, I think it can be both sides. Yeah. 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 And the drive. Yeah. I don't know where the drive comes from. I just. I really don't know what the what the instigator it is. It's like it's not like a, fl- a a switch I have to flick on at any point. I think for young people listening to this, that there's a couple of learnings from that story before. Like on the business side, don't base your whole. You can't have your whole business model be reliant on one other business because their incentives can their motivations can change. So don't ever rely on one company to for your whole value proposition. That's the learning. But then the learning for me meeting Jacob and eventually becoming partners for 50-50 mm. partners with him is like if you want to get into entrepreneurship, it's not always about starting your own thing. You can go out and find an, like an amazing entrepreneur and, and you, you, you can go to these entrepreneurs and say, I'll work for free, I'll work for very little, like just let me learn everything. And I, my, my learning was so accelerated by being with someone who's 10 years older than me, latching onto this person and like – and and, for, and filling a need that they have as well in, in skill sets. Um, very few people do that. Just reach out and go, I'll do anything to, to support you. People, younger people tend to go through the normal sort of process of corporate jobs and, and then they eventually land into entre- – or they just try and start their own thing from scratch, which isn't always the best – thing like an apprenticeship is actually really good (laughs) it works for the tradies (laughs) and well look an apprenticeship slash you know an entrepreneurial apprenticeship is what your business now is i think in a way so so that that makes total sense there no I, i love those learnings and i think yeah there's so much we can take away i think that you know having someone there whether it's a someone who's done it before or whether it's someone who's just a few stages ahead of you and being Mm. able to kind of learn from them and shadow them, um, you know, invaluable. So, okay. So we're at a point where, you know, you've just been told that your whole business is just going under, Um, (laughs) you know, you're 20, you've, you've matched up with this entrepreneur 10 years older than you, you know, what came next? You said, oh, onto the next venture. I think firstly, even before that, how did you pick yourself up from such a kind of low point, you could say? It's a good question. Um, we, well, luckily, we still had that cash flow business on the side um, next to it that had a few stuff and that was paying the bills. So, luckily, it didn't all come crumbling down. Um, yeah, we we did. Uh, the biggest things that um, Jake taught me were, the, were these mindset things. He didn't really t- teach me that much execution stuff because that's what I was was naturally good at so he told me these mindset things and there's you know there's great books like power of now and there's a whole bunch all of those classic books that you know some people uh, are into and some people aren't but what those books teach you to do is just see things objectively and to understand that you know it's not all over at that point so we were we were and we had other ideas that we were experimenting with so we just kept just kept cracking on to, to more and more different software ideas that we had um and it was really a that was a journey of 
the next two years were were probably like four or five of those in a row of things, actually good ideas failing because of a lack of understanding on execution. So avoidable mistakes um, being made that if someone told you just before you made the mistake, you could have avoided it and there would have been different ways. We could have, in that deals example, we could have fed in deals from multiple partners, de-risked it. So all of these things, we just went through next one after next one. We managed somehow to stay alive on the with the with the cash flow thing on the side that we weren't trying to grow aggressively. So we always managed to keep that going to, so that we weren't, so that if a startup died, we weren't completely down and out. And we'll talk about it later, but the, 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 the crazy thing about that journey is like over a million dollars wasted easily and we didn't know how to raise money back then. We didn't know how to get investment and that would have made things really different as well if we weren't having to always balance cash flow and, and fund everything based on um, our cash flow business. We, and you, we, if we could have got bigger chunks of investment, that would have alleviated some of the, the failures that we had, yeah. I find that fascinating. I think the reason why I do is because you were relentless in your pursuit. You know, it was like that business failed, next one, next one for two years. You know, that that is epic that you were even able to get through that period there and then obviously build your whole company now off the back of that. So um, what are some key learnings that you took away from that two-year period? You know, what, you know, for some of us out there, you know, maybe we've started an idea, it didn't work out and we're a bit discouraged. Like what what would you say to us and what were some of your key learnings? Um, the biggest learning would be, and it's actually now that we have a lot more data points as to why startups fail, the number one reason startups fail, like literally is because entrepreneurs – the, the, in the study, it says they build products that people didn't want. But what I would translate that to is that entrepreneurs do s- far too many things based on assumptions, mm. right? So, so much of the way that we launch our in-house ventures, which isn't very obvious on the Pitch Black website, but we do a lot, we still and will always do a lot of in-house stuff, um, is, is so different now. We don't go to product development. Back then, it was like, idea, make a product, you know, make it's always about like create, creation, and, and entrepreneurs love to get into that product development part because maybe maybe it's fun. Probably because it's not scary. Raising money is scary, and commercialization and sales and all these things are are scarier than shiny products. So, um, but yeah, that would be the biggest learning. Like we we rushed. Like a lot of the fail was was due to rushing, and we didn't know how to validate ideas at all. And we, we just trusted our gut, which is actually really dangerous because mm. no one's gut ha- would have an accuracy above 80% and that 20% is enough to kill you. So that would be the biggest learning. Yeah, slow down a little bit, validate, validate the ideas and don't rush into product development. I love that. I want to talk a bit more about validation. It's something we do with a lot. You hear it thrown around and validate your idea, validate your idea. <laughs> what, you know, strategies can we use to do that? Um, you know, if we've got a random idea, you know, to start a podcast, um, you know, what processes can we take to start validating? Yeah, great question. And yeah, most people think validation is like talking about their idea at a barbecue or running a survey and it just isn't. What you want to avoid, what you don't want to do in validation is have any bias in the experiments that you run. So straight up talking to your friends about your idea and pitching the idea has bias inherently in it and the, any data you get back from that is not real um, because your friends either saying that's a good idea to encourage you because they love you or it's your mum. Like your mum <laughs> definitely is going to say it's a good idea. <laughs> it's your mum. So yeah, it's just not the right, not the right way of going about it. 
surveys also like the amount of entrepreneurs I meet, they like, I asked 100 people, would they pay for a product like this? And they said, yes, that just, that's not how the psychology of buying works um, in hypotheticals and conversation where they feel like they have to give you a particular answer. So for consumer products, if you've got a physical product or software um, or a podcast, um, for example, we um, do these really interesting hacky things. So for example, you can create a fake Facebook account fake name, fake logo, so it's just completely fake, um, and then run ads to a broad demographic that you think captures your um, who would potentially be in the audience. We tell people to go really broad um, because you don't really know who your tribe is at the start. And the ad will talk about the problem that you're trying to solve in the market and what the, the general concept of your physical product or app or website or podcast, whatever it is, is going to be and prove that you can get cheap pre-registrations on Facebook for that. Name, email, um, put it in. If you're, going to do a, if you're going to do a podcast and you're getting pre-registrations at $20 per consumer, that's not very good. <laughs> you're hoping that it's going to be like, oh, that podcast sounds really interesting. It's like 50 cents, a dollar, $2. That, that, that's like, okay, my acquisition to get people to listen to this thing is not crazy um, compared to what in the future I could potentially make from sponsorship and whatnot. So um, yeah, test, the, test those things. And seeing that you're using a fake brand you're not burning your brand. You're not, you're not hurting anyone. All they're doing is putting in their email, um, but it's an experiment and you just have to match the cost of that pre-registration versus how much you think you can make per consumer. If you're selling $200 sneakers, getting pre-registrations for $5, you're onto it. I'm really like- <laughs> Got it right. You got it. You know, I'm really trying hard not to swear here, by the way. I think I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> um, I like to restrict my interviewees. No. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that's one- we, we hear a lot of people pitch peer-to-peer ideas like Uber, Airbnb. I'm going to match these people. You know, it's a really common idea uh, and it's justified in many cases and sometimes it's not. But if you have a market, that's called a marketplace. If you have a marketplace idea, then start a, um, start a Facebook group, which is free. You can do that literally straight after listening to this podcast. Call it, you know, something to do with the um, the type of market pl- peer-to-peer marketplace that you're doing and prove that you can get the supply and demand into that group. Again, you can use ads. You can tell all your friends to go in there. You can build a Facebook group of hundreds of members um, either swapping, trading, transacting with each other in a Facebook group really fast in a number of weeks. They'll be tra- transacting with each other in um, by cash. So you're not making any money, but you're proving to yourself and to potential investors that you actually can build this community that you're talking about. But people don't do that. They want to do the Uber of X <laughs> and they want to build their app and they want to design stuff uh, and they want to hide hide away from marketing and sales mm. and any t- type of commercialization, commercialization for as long as possible because it's scary. But that really proves you can do it. And probably the only other type of idea is when you're signing up a business and a business you can actually sign up on a letter of intent, like a non-legally binding just on one of their letterheads, yes, we're willing to do a pilot of that software or product when you launch and you don't need to have a product to get that letter of intent. Even from a wow. bank, you can get big clients on board in pre-launch and that if you can't get anyone to sign up for it in pre-launch, then it's you haven't validated the idea. Yeah, so there's always a thing you can wow. do. Yeah. Okay, so repeat some of, to repeat some of these takeaways, so it's 
get that idea out there into the market ASAP. Yep. Um, under a you know a different brand, you know, not your name, a different logo, um, <laughs> and just run those ads to see if you can build that community. Yep. Um, another thing I found fascinating the you know building a community over hundreds of people doesn't take that long online. Um, you know, a couple of weeks give yourself that. Um, fascinating, and then. If it's a service-based business, you need to get a client. Yeah, yeah. if it's yeah. for business, yeah, if you're targeting companies as opposed to consumers, consumers. sign up some companies, you know, there and you, you need to, you'll have to have some, you know, a website and we can talk about that later. You, you need to have like a, you know, a, a bit of a logo, a website, maybe a little fake prototype or something to show off, but it's not crazy expensive. So you'll need something to show the business more than just you conversationally saying it, but you don't. You certainly don't need to code anything or build anything physical um, to be able to sign up mm. business. People, people start, sign up Australian banks with a fake prototype, right? And so if, you sign up, if you sign up ANZ, you can raise a million dollars yeah. based on that one letter of intent mm. before you've even built a product. So, yeah, so you just sell the thing before you've got it. <laughs> <laughs> sell the thing before you've got it. Most valuable advice right here. No, I love this. Um, great. So I want to dive back into your story. So, you know, you're at the point now where you've done those two years of failing, you know, getting it back up, failing, getting it back up. What was then next for you? Is that when Pitchback was launched? What happened then? Yep. Um, so we, from those learnings, we started to build some ventures that were actually starting to go well. And the biggest learning point at that point was how to raise money. So we actually started to raise, started to actually get investment for the um, for the ideas that we've got. So there was the two of us then, there's four of us now, uh, four owners now, and we've raised just under 20 mil Australian between these this sort of portfolio that we've got of our own ventures. Wow. Um, no exits yet. So we're hoping on that, you know, fingers <laughs> crossed. I'm sure out of five or six of them, we'll get one at some point. But Things started to fall into place and we'd, we'd learned enough and we were starting to actually build decent products and get, get investors on board and things were moving in the right direction. Again, this is all software space. So still mm. my businesses have always been software or services. I haven't had a crack at something physical, a physical product yet. I'm just trying to stick to what we know for now and we'll do that later. But um, yeah, things started falling into place and then even though there was no brand, there was no pitch black then, people around us obviously started getting intrigue as things go better. When you're just a non <laughs> that's just doing a really, really terrible job of failing. I've failed like five or six things in a row, which is crazy because I know some other entrepreneurs actually cracked on the first or second times. So I'm like, wow, I'm actually way worse than the average, <laughs> like literally. But, um, but when things start going well, people notice. And then so family, friends initially in a network say, I have this idea. Uh, turns out a lot of people have an idea. But we, we ran a study in Queensland and in that with a thousand data points and one in four people had an idea. Wow. So very mass. Um, lots of people are, have these, these, these product ideas. So people started reaching out to us like, how do you get investment? How do you do that? How, how do I know if my idea is any good? You know, how, should I quit my job? All these, like, these early stage entrepreneurial questions started coming to us. If we had cracked it on our first, just being like really transparent, if we had cracked it on our first startup, I know that Pitch Black wouldn't have started because selfishly we would have been having too much fun <laughs> and we wouldn't have, we would have helped people later in life um, after doing a lot of things, probably a decade later, but we would have been really busy just building our own things and having fun with that. But because we got off to such a terrible start, we had a lot of empathy for how hard it is mm. and, the, and the lack of support. And we didn't even know the word startup seven years ago. Like in southeast Queensland in Australia, like no one was – we were starting online businesses in our minds. So um, we had lots of empathy and we're like we should 
alongside doing our own things, we should like start exploring how to um, how to support other people through that journey. So that's when it started. It's like four years ago, um, roughly, and it was just um, maybe yeah four and a, four and a bit years ago now. Let's start with this thing. Uh, it's been branded as Pitch Black for the last probably two and a half years or something. Started with another name that I'm going to say. It's so bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, and so we started exploring how can we support these other entrepreneurs and started taking on uh, a couple of people around us to support them with their ideas and it, and it grew from there mm. alongside our, our own ventures. Love that. Wow. It, it's crazy, isn't it, that you're, you're, all your failures ended up turning into what you're most proud to, you know, what you do today and what is absolutely epic. Um, so just for all of our listeners out there, I mean, Mitch Black is Australia's largest startup institute um, with offices in Melbourne and Brisbane. Um, and, you know, as, as, as Adrian was saying, it's designed to help entrepreneurs to get that investment for their idea um, and to navigate through those first 12 to 18 months of the journey. So, yes. I mean, I found that fascinating how you were able to go from, cool, we're just helping a couple of people and, you know, now everyone's kind of looking to us because we've done something right um, mm. after the failures and now we've scaled this up and we're in two cities across Australia. You know, talk to us a bit about, I guess, those initial challenges and then the progression. Of yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I think the biggest challenge was what's the business model to help an entrepreneur, mm. right? Like you, you're going into that. We knew going to the, we're going into a space where people don't have money, right? Uh, or don't have much money. Like if you want to sell innovation services, I can tell you right now, your target should be corporates, not <laughs> people with ideas, right? So it's really at its heart, it's an, a social enterprise, and. When you're dealing at idea stage, we don't take equity. So it's just all fee-for-service, fee for really fair, affordable fees. And um, so, yeah, the, the hard, we actually dabbled with equity at the start. But the, the, the challenges at the start was like, what should be our relationship commercially with these people who have ideas? Like, if you take equity, if you take equity meaning, if you take a stake in their business um, in, in exchange for cash or services like design and whatever, all the things that we sort of do internally – there's, a, there's an inherent problem with that at the early stage, which is that if you take equity, you're a betting company. And if you're a betting company, you're not going to bet on brand new horses. You're going <laughs> to bet on the best horses. So a VC, a venture capitalist, an accelerator, these models are great and we're partnered with the best ones in Australia. We actually augment their, their business model. We're a feeder. We're a feeder into the, into the second stage of the industry. But we, can't, we couldn't take equity in the early days because you can't help many people. The whole purpose of it was like, how do we help lots of people who went through what we're doing? VCs are happy if they, if they take on one new asset a month. They're pumped. So that's 12 a year. Not a lot of impact. Melbourne, except people, I heard someone say the other day that, man, there's so many accelerators in, in Australia. I think there's like 100, someone threw that figure out in a conversation. But accelerators often only take on 8, 10 people a year. That's only 1,000 nationally in Australia that's only a thousand startups a year that's not very that's not very much so the problem that we're solving is which we call the black hole that's where the name comes from pitch black people often ah. the black hole is like where 99% of entrepreneurs are right now clueless about how to get to this magical word traction where accelerators and VCs will actually sit at the table mm. with them and back them that's the biggest problem in the startup space. That's where the volume sits, right? So it was, that was the biggest challenge at the start. Like we took, we did a little bit of equity stuff. Then we're like, whoa, like we can't, we can't do many of these a year. We could only help a few people a year. Move to fixed fee and then trying to figure out what were the services that and what's the model 
to um, to help an entrepreneur get from that zero to one. That was mm. the, the hardest part. Lots of experimentation, yeah. lots of mistakes, um, lots of having to refine the process over the years to figure out what works. Mm. Yeah. So, so talk to us a bit about that, um, the timeline there. So, you know, you, you have this obviously huge challenge you have to solve um, and that, you know, been doing this, you said, for about four years and then yep. two years with the rebrand. You know, talk to us about that progression, yeah, yep. and the timeline. And- yep. So the... the um, in terms of what you have to help an early stage entrepreneur with, we've had we've actually gone through phases of figuring out the individual components that are required. So the crazy thing is that there's no silver bullet, nowhere near it. It's like what an entrepreneur needs if they've got an idea is like strategy, mentoring, psychology, community, design, um, helping them find coders if it's software. All these things, it's like eight different things. So across the journey, we've been like, we, we did at the start, we did a lot of like lower scale um, consulting just to support them, started dabbling with um, design because they're really terrible at design. And we had some good in-house designers that were doing our own startup. So they're like, can we use yours? So by accident, we started helping them with product design, you know, UX, UI, or, or there's a particular lot of software stuff. Brand um, came up a lot. They were really terrible at brand and positioning themselves and telling and, and getting it out of the entrepreneur's head about how do we position ourselves. So we, we t- did that. And then probably the where things really started accelerating at the start of 2017, so this is quite deep into that mm. sort of consulting model, we decided to let's scale out the IP that we figured out and start doing group education. Because when you're, if you're just helping someone one-on-one, you don't actually build that much IP where you're really forced to have systems and, and to document things is where you start helping it at a, at a more of a mass level. So in Brisbane, started last year, we're like, we're going to run a group pre-accelerator program, like an early fix. They pay a fee, no equity, uh, and we take them through a three-month process, but they can stay in their job to help them prove up their idea and get it investor ready um, before they build a product. So that was like a crazy year last year. That was where really things started kicking into gear where we're like, okay, let's let's figure out the education aspect to this. Um, we ran eight cohorts Jeez. that were overlapping. It was an exhausting, it was the most exhausting year of my life last year. My <gasps> life's a lot more chill now, even though it's busy. But <laughs> Having done um, few podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was full on figuring out that IP of how you deliver to a group of like 10, 15, 20 people that come in one night per week. You'd, you'd do the education and the workshops and then they'd go and execute throughout the week, even though they still had their corporate jobs and whatnot. Um, that was awesome to, to figure out the 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 education aspect and how to standardize education so that people like, so that a whole room could understand it. So that was, that was a big tick and yeah, 110 entrepreneurs through that total through the year. But the biggest learning point from that was education is incredibly important. Knowledge is incredibly important, but knowledge on its own, again, is not enough. Mm. It needs to be um, all of those things that I listed before. So we're now the sort of last evolution and the thing that we think is working the best by far is we're now moving all of that education online, Mm. um, not to commercialise or sell as its own product, um, but more so to when we're supporting an entrepreneur in a hands-on way, we can we don't have to now talk about the basics. We've got like hundreds of videos that they can go through, learning all of that pre-accelerator stuff as a channel alongside us doing the strategy and design and investor readiness. So that, that whole layer is lifted up now, which is good because I don't have to run two or three 
four-hour workshops a week yeah, yeah. at night time because everyone has a job. Oh, it was, yeah. yeah it, was like, it started at 6 p.m. Oh, Huge for an introvert as well. Oh, it was like yeah. exhausting. I need my time. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, we met like amazing people through that in Brisbane, obviously, and lots of those startups are doing really well now. Um, but, yeah, we, we, we've sort of separated out that education now and it means when we're in person – we don't – one of the biggest problems we were experiencing is like having to go through basics in person. Strategy, particularly as that we try to value our time more and more over time, strategy should be really custom and they do need that those strategic moments in their journey um, and we don't want to be teaching them about these landmines to avoid and all the IP that we've already built and that should just be automated online as a layer and then we want to – when myself and Kim and the other senior people in the business are sitting down with them to help them on those startup. We want to get down to like the the real unique things about their startup and help them with that, not go through the basics of how to raise money and all that. So it's that's sort of it's getting to that peak point now where everything in the last four years is turning into one service delivery, one methodology. And we would have never not and again being transparent, if I knew it was that hard, we probably wouldn't have started it. <laughs> but we love entrepreneurs now, and we're like, we're in too deep, so we're not turning around. But it was way harder to support. We we're like, oh, we should support other people with their ideas. Mm. That'll be fun. That'll be great. That'll be rewarding. <laughs> Never knew it would take wow. such a big team. Wow. So many streams of different service delivery and support. It's full on how much is required to to re- massively reduce those um, failure rates. So. Mm crazy huge huge idea tackling but I, I love it I mean it's fascinating to hear the progression it's fascinating to hear that you know it is that hard to figure this out for other people as, as much as it's like it's hard to find it figure it out for yourself when you're trying to teach someone else um, it takes things to the next level so I, I totally I commend you on the work you're doing um, I think it's awesome and Thank you. you know as we as we come to the close of, of today's episode um, I, I just want to take that time to acknowledge you, um, Adrian. And I think, you know, um, all the work you've done, for all the work you've done that you're doing, um, I think it's absolutely awesome. And, you know, hearing your story is what so many of us crave to, to kind of hear those pitfalls and then the highs and the, you know, the lows. And yes. it kind of helps us through our own journey of this. Um, and so we really appreciate it. No worries. Of course. Anything is, um, it, yeah, anything is possible. It's really and, and young people listening to this should really, there's, you don't get back those early years, like those early 20s, mid 20s, like it's such a good time. We, we just meet entrepreneurs all the time. They're like 35, 40, 45. And, that, and actually the average age of success, successful entrepreneur apparently on a study was 39 because um, life experience and all these things, but we believe it's anything from <laughs> any age. But it's the barriers when you have... Um, when you have children, when you have the mortgage, those extra barriers, yes, you have more life experience, but there's there's a lot more that, that has to be considered about entrepreneurship at that stage. So I really encourage people listening to this to like not see your early 20s or your mid-20s as like this is just party, travel. You know, you can, yes, do that in, in batches, but it's such an amazing opportunity where you have less responsibility to just do crazy stuff mm. and just and just try and just learn and try and latch on to epic people um you know just leech onto them <laughs> don't get find find that person like i found at the start and 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 ask to learn everything they know and, and work for terrible money don't overvalue yourself when you're young just work for crappy money for amazing people uh, and that's where the magic will happen love this <laughs> um great so 
I want to end with our final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews here at the Peers Project. And that is, what do you think is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Um, Minimising any risk of regret. Love that. Short and sweet, to the point. Love it. Well, thanks so much, Adrian. We've had an absolute blast. Um, Going to link all of these awesome tips you've given us um, to the to our show notes at the end of the episodes. But where can people learn more about you and Pitchback? Yeah, I think the place I would point people to would be um, on our Facebook. We just we do we're so we're so big on believing that you should deliver a lot of value to people for free. Um, so our we are the most aggressive <laughs> startup institution in Australia with content. So we've got a podcast, we've got videos that go out, educational videos that go out, we've got a free webinar on how to get investment. So yeah, our, the Facebook would be the epicenter of that content where you get, where you see a lot of it um, come out. And our spelling's a little bit weird. It's like pitch black, all one word, and it's B-L-A-K at the end, very startup. Um, <laughs> probably not the greatest spelling, but you get used to it. But yeah, so if you search us on Facebook, and follow us there. That will you'll probably see um, all all of our content and find us there, or it's pitchblack.co on our website if you want to check that out. Love it. Well, thanks so much, Adrian. We had a blast. It was great. Thanks for having me. Love it, of course. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at The Peers Project. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>